Um, this morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 22. Uh, if you read along with me. Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emma. Please keep your Bibles open. Well, I grew up in a fairly traditional Chinese family. Um, We spoke Chinese at home. Uh, We celebrate Chinese New Year, and whenever we got home, we had to take our shoes off. And so when I went to my Anglo friend's house in primary school and started taking off my shoes when I went to their place, they gave me a funny look and thought I was doing a really weird thing, Uh, because they would just walk into their house with their shoes on and even on carpet. If my mum saw that, she'd have a heart attack. Uh, And the next thing you know, I bump into the same friend at the supermarket, and he wouldn't be wearing any shoes. Uh, Growing up in Australia was very confusing. On the one hand, I thought I was very Chinese. Uh, Yet on the other hand, I I realised more and more how Australian I was. And and that came to a head when I visited China for the first time. So I was one time busting to go to the toilet. And I found the toilet, I went into the cubicle, and there was no seat. All there was was a hole in the ground, and I started freaking out. I was like, what's going on here? Where is that seat? Now, they didn't have the, there's a picture on the next slide. They didn't have this picture on the door, but they should have, because I had no idea that there was a particular direction that you had to sit, on, uh, sit, sit in as well. Now, I can only imagine how confusing it can be for Chinese holidaymakers in Australia when they run to our toilet, and then they wonder, why do Australians squat so high off the ground. It's just a clash of cultures, isn't it? Uh, uh, so I'm so glad that you know, there are signs now all over the place in Australia as to how to use a toilet seat. Now, you see, we're all influenced by the culture around us, by our families and how we relate to each other, by popular culture and what we consider as funny or cool or hip, by our workplace, what, what productivity looks like. And so if a Facebook employee sleeps at work, it's seen as a good thing. Because a power nap will enable them to be more productive, more innovative. But if a consultant at Boston Consulting Group is found sleeping at work, then it's seen as a terrible thing, a bad thing. 
because consultants don't need sleep. So, so what might happen if a Facebook employee switched companies and started working for Boston Consulting Group? There's going to be a clash of cultures, isn't there? And someone's going to have to give. You see, our culture shapes our preferences in music and in food. It informs our definition of what a man is and what a woman is and what, what they should be like and what they should do. It influences the way we can, what we consider as funny or disgusting. Uh, and even our culture impacts and influences the way we read the Bible. Now, as a church, our vision statement is to be a thriving, multicultural, multilingual, multi-generational gospel-shaped community. Last week, uh, we began our commitment series by looking at Revelation 7, uh, that God has a vision, that he's working all things together so that all will be subject to Christ, that the people of God will be around God, worshipping God, people from every tribe, nation, people and language. And so we want our church's vision to be in line with God's vision so that what God's doing is also what we're doing. And so that means that because God's vision is a big vision, so our church's vision is a big vision. And it may take 10 more years of hard gospel work before we become more multicultural. And the people in our church reflects the people in our society. It may take 20 more years of hard gospel work before we become more multilingual and that we can minister to more people in their mother tongues. It may take 30 more years of hard gospel work before the fruit of our multi-generational ministry can see fruit in that, that our children will grow up, become leaders of churches here and beyond. But as we saw last week, we're already becoming a gospel-shaped community. Not only is the gospel preached and taught in our church, the gospel is taking root in our lives. And we heard lots of stories about that last week. And I hope you've been encouraged by those stories just as I've been. Now over the, the next three weeks, including this week of our commitment month, what we're going to do is explore these other three M's, the three M's that are in our, mission sta- our vision statement. Uh, and today we'll start with the first. What does it mean for us to be a multicultural church? Uh, since the end of World War II in 1945, more than 7 million immigrants have descended onto Australian shores and called and made Australia home. Uh, as, as such, uh, uh, because of that, Australia has long been described as a melting pot of cultures. And since Australia is multicultural, we want to be a multicultural church. We want our church to reflect Australian society because we want our church to be for all people who live among us. Now, it's wonderful to live in a multicultural society, isn't it? I mean, just think about all the restaurants and all the cuisine and all the, all the wonderful festivals that there are there, celebrating different cultures for us to enjoy. But sometimes it can be really difficult, can't it, uh, to live in, in a multicultural society? Because when we live with people who aren't like us, then there'll be clashes. Clashes in our cultures. There'll be misunderstandings and racism, discrimination and stereotyping. We've seen this in in recent months with the Sudanese community, haven't we? And it's sad. It's really sad. And so it's a huge challenge for us to grow as a multicultural church because the more cultures there are, the more cultural clashes there'll be. 
As a church, we're already becoming multicultural. We're, we're a body of people from many and very cultural backgrounds. Uh, Australian, Italian, English and Indonesian, Jewish and Dutch, Chinese and Malaysian, Singapore and Taiwanese, French and Indian, Hongki and Filipino, and some of us are even from Darwin. We're a very diverse group of people. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because the gospel is for all cultures. We are seeing the fruit of God's labor as this gospel goes out to different people. But when people of different cultural backgrounds come together, whose culture is going to dominate? Whose culture is going to come out on top? Whose culture is going to shape the way we all should think? The way we should all relate, the way we all should behave? Is it the culture with the most people? And so majority wins. Or is it the culture with the loudest voice? And so the loudest wins. So, for example, I'm an ABC. That is, I'm an Australian-born Chinese. Uh, that means I'm a third culture kid. I've got one foot in my Chinese heritage, and I've got a, a foot in Australian culture. And the question is, what defines me the most? And therefore defines my attitude, my behavior, what I like and don't like. Well, there's a clash of expectations between my Chinese roots and my Australian upbringing, <laughs> isn't there? In, in so many ways, in so many areas of my life, and when they come to a head, which one wins? Say I was in a conflict. Do I, do I step into my Chinese heritage and sweep things under the carpet and pretend like nothing's happened? And now I'm generalizing, of course, okay? Or do I, I step into my Australian culture and I confront people and deal with it head on. Well, what do you think? When you're in a situation which culture dominates, your response, your reaction, your attitude, your behavior. Well, it shouldn't be either of these things, should it? And that's because I'm not just an ABC. I'm an ABC, BAC. That is, I'm an Australian-born Chinese, born-again Christian. And so my concern shouldn't be so much about my Chinese heritage or my Australian influences. As a Christian, my identity is in Christ. My King and my Lord is Christ. He says how I should behave, how I should think, and what I should do. And so if I was in a conflict, my Christian convictions from Matthew chapter 7 would tell me not to sweep things under the carpet like a Chinese person or to be confrontational like an Australian, but to first remove the log that is in my own eye. You see, our family and friends, our nationality, our upbringing all affect the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we behave. But our thoughts and feelings and behaviors and cultural influences may not necessarily be right. They, some may need to be rejected. Some may be received like great food. And some may be redeemed by Christ. So when I was working at Telstra, one of my colleagues was an unbelieving Croatian. A really nice guy, really able in his work. 
And on one of the projects we were assigned, a Serbian engineer was assigned to our project. And so he said to me, Dave, I don't trust this guy. He's going to ruin our project. And so I, I, I thought, oh, you must have worked with him before. Like, oh, did, did something happen? And he goes, no, no, I've never worked with this guy. I don't know who he is. All I know is that his surname means that he's a Serb. And Croatians and Serbs don't get along because of Yugoslavia. And growing up, my parents always hated the Serbs. And I do too. I don't know why, but it's in me, and I hate this guy already. At the end of the day, it didn't matter whether this engineer was a top engineer or not. All it mattered to my friend was the fact that this guy was a And so, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of this sort of prejudice, the stereotypes, the hatred. Or, or maybe you can relate to this because you feel those sorts of things. People of different ethnicities to yours, of cultural backgrounds to yours. Maybe you look down on others who are different to you, like making fun of people who speak with broken English, or joking about made-in-China stuff and putting down the Chinese. Australians love to use humour and sarcasm as a form of endearment, but people from other cultures don't understand it. They don't find it very endearing at all. And so we have a clash of culture. Sometimes our culture means we naturally think less of others, and sometimes our, our cultural background means we unintentionally hurt others as well. And we must repent of all these things. We must let Christ shape the way we think and the way we feel, not just towards him, but towards others. And so as a church that's seeking to be multicultural, we're going to have to expect our cultures to come clashing in over and over again. And it's going to be confusing. It's going to hurt. It's going to cause misunderstandings. But if we persevere in pursuing a gospel-shaped culture in our church, then God willing, over time, it's not our Asianness or our Australianness or whatever it is that dominates the culture in our church. But God willing, over time, it's our Christian convictions that will most influence our personal culture, our attitude towards one another, and therefore the culture of our church. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people knew of CZAC, not primarily of our Asianness, or our Australianness, or our Frenchness, or our ABCness, or our Anglicanness, or our Reformness, or our Evangelicalism, but as, but for our Christ likeness, for our Christ likeness. And so everyone will know, wouldn't it be great if everyone knew that we were like Christ? We were all like Christ. The culture of our church was Christ-like. And, and so it means that regardless of anyone 
who belongs to any cultural background, could step foot into our door and will know that they will be welcomed and not looked down on. That they'll feel loved and not unloved. That they'll feel accepted and not judged. That they'll feel that we want them to sit with us and not apart from us. That they'll feel like we want to get to know them and not be ignored by us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so if that's the kind of gospel-shaped culture that you want in your church, then let me encourage you to do two things. The first is to remember who you are in Christ. And the second is to have the same mindset as that of Christ. So let's look at the first one. Remember who you are in Christ. Now for centuries, Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other very much. In fact, they hated each other. There was so much antagonism between them that it would have been worse than the Croatians and the Serbs today. So unless a Gentile became a Jew, like Ruth or Rahab in the Old Testament, there was just no way that Jews and Gentiles would get along. We're about to live well and united and lovingly towards each other. Their cultures were so vastly different, their troubled history was so ingrained in them, that humanly speaking, it was impossible for Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with each other. The Jews were circumcised, the Gentiles weren't. The Jews kept the Sabbath day holy, and the Gentiles didn't care about the Sabbath at all. The Jews worshipped one God at one temple in Jerusalem, whereas the Gentiles worshipped many gods and many temples throughout the world, and they worshipped idols. And so that's what Paul, the apostle, reminds the Christians in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, please follow along with me. He says to them, therefore, he's just explained to them that the salvation is by grace alone. And so then he goes, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by, in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's reminding them of who they were, of who you and I were, without God and without hope in this world. And so the Gentiles were as far from God. We were as far from God as the east is from the west. But in God's kindness, through Jesus' death on the cross, through the blood that he shed for us, both Jews and Gentiles can now have peace, not just with God, but with each other. Whatever divided them before, like their race and their religious practices, their culture and their nationality, destroyed in Christ. Destroyed on the cross. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This means that, the, uh, that from the two very distinct groups of people who were vastly different and, very, and had very little in common, who would never get along and even hated each other, could now come together as one unified people. One new humanity under Christ. It gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? As a multicultural church. That if God could do that for the Jews and Gentiles, imagine what he could do for us. 
Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And this is possible because both Jews and Gentiles have heard the same gospel and have received the same spirit. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so what this means is that whoever puts their faith in Jesus and becomes a Christian are equal members with us in God's family. Verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Just as we don't get to choose our biological family, so we don't get to choose God's family. And so as God continues to save a people for himself from different backgrounds and cultures, there'll be some people that we may not naturally get along with. There may even be some people that we don't like. But if we remember how far off we once were, maybe we can begin to genuinely welcome a stranger who's completely different to us, into our church, into our home. If we remember how wicked, how evil, how sinful we were, then maybe we will begin to genuinely forgive and love and reconcile. If we remember how unlovable we were to God, maybe we can begin to genuinely love and take a keen interest in the lives of others. If we remember that Jesus has died for us, then maybe we will let Jesus shape our lives, our culture, our attitude towards one another. And so we just don't tolerate each other. We'll genuinely embrace each other and sit with each other. We, we won't just hate each other. We won't hate each other anymore. We'll genuinely love each other instead and spend time getting to know people you wouldn't ordinarily get to know. But you will and you want to because they are a child of God. They are in your family. And that's what God wants to see, isn't it? Be, because he's gathering his new people. He's building his holy temple. This is his family. This is his temple. This is where he wants his spirit to dwell. Verse 21, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. During the 2018 uh, World Cup finals, a few months ago, Japanese won everyone's hearts. It made headlines around the world, and it wasn't because they won the World Cup. It was because of how they lost the World Cup. Despite a heart-wrenching last-minute defeat against Belgium, when there were 16 teams left, they, they could have trashed the stadium in protest to, 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 to express their frustration and anger that their team lost at the final minute. But they didn't. 
Japanese, Japanese fans in the stadium walked down every aisle picking up rubbish and cleaning up the stadium. Not just for their side, but for the Belgium side as well. They left the stadium spotless. And it wasn't just the fans who did this. The players did too. In their locker room, they not only left it spotless, they left a thank you card to the Russians for hosting them. The Japanese did what they did, not because they had to, but it was because it was in their culture. That's what Japanese do. They clean up after themselves. And so it was plastered over newspapers right across the globe. Some even said that Japanese culture should be adopted by all of us. And I'm thinking of adopting this for my children. <laughs> if a journalist from the age was here this morning, and maybe there is one, I don't know, would they be inspired by our church's culture the way the world was inspired by the Japanese culture? Because it's one thing to know the gospel and to remember the gospel and to remember what Christ has done for us and to call ourselves Christians, but it's a totally different thing to live out the gospel, to be people who are committed to being salt and light in the community and outside of our community. And so it's not enough to simply say, oh, we remember the gospel. We must also live out the gospel. And so this is my second point. I wonder whether the starting point for us to start living out the gospel, to start shaping our church culture to be a gospel-shaped culture, is by rethinking our attitude. By rethinking our attitude. In Paul's letter to the Philippine Christians, Paul commands them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what that looks like isn't just being gospel people, standing firm in the gospel, preaching the gospel. It also means having the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Now, there's a story about uh, three young men. They go on a bus, and they head towards the back of the bus. And at the back of the bus, they saw one guy sitting by himself, looking down with a hooded jacket on. And so these guys wanted to pick, up, uh, pick a fight. And so they, they, they started teasing this guy and insulting this guy, trying to pick a fight with this guy who was sitting there by himself. But the guy at the back of the bus remains silent. Eventually, he stands up because it's his stop. He stands up, and then they freak out because he towers over them. He was much bigger than they expected. And he reaches into his pocket and hands them a business card, and he gets off the bus. As the bus drives on, the, the, the three friends crowd around to look at the business card, and what they read is... Joe Lewis, boxer. These three young men had tried to pick a fight with the man who would become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world 13 times. According to the International Boxing Research Organization, he's the number one boxer of all time, second, Muhammad Ali. Lewis was such a powerful and skillful boxer, he could knock out a horse with one punch. So do you think Lewis had the strength, the power, the ability to knock these three punks out? Absolutely. He was more capable, more than capable to defend his honour. He didn't have to take their insults. He didn't have to entertain their stupidity. Yet he chose to keep his hands in his pockets 
for some very fortunate punks. Now, I love this story because it really reflects what Paul goes on about in Philippians 2. He says this in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, in this story, we, we see both conceit and humility. The three young punks were conceited. They thought they were strong and powerful, and they could take on this guy who was sitting by himself. They thought very high of themselves and very low of Lewis. But Lewis was very humble. He, even though he's strong and powerful, he doesn't use his power for himself to defend his honor, for example, to retaliate. No, no, no. He looked to the interests of the other. The punks didn't. They looked to their own interests. And if Lewis looked to his own interests, he'll knock them out. But he didn't. He looked to their interests, and that was for them to live. And so he kept his hands in his pockets. And these three young punks were very fortunate that day. You see, humility isn't weakness or, or low self-esteem. In, in the book Humilitas, John Dixon gives a great definition of humility. He, say, he says this, Humility is the noble choice to forego your status. The noble choice to forego your status. Deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And that's exactly what Lewis did, isn't it? Friends, just think about all the broken relationships we have, all the cultural clashes we've endured, all the divisions you've seen in churches that you've been in. How often do they happen because we're conceited? We think so highly of ourselves and so low of others. We think we're so perfect when we're not. We think we're so righteous when we're not. We think we're so wise when we're not. Friends, we need to be humble. We need to value others above ourselves. We need to look to the interests of others before our own. At our recent our Connect training conference, Mike Rader, who preached on the Sermon on the Mount, gave a great story about Wesley and Whitfield. And I, I found that. I'd love to share it with you. Uh, so John Wesley and George Whitfield were big-name preachers in the 18th century in England and America. They both loved Jesus heaps. They were both great leaders of God's church. And through them, thousands upon thousands of people became Christians. Heaps of churches were planted. But there was a very public rivalry between these two men. Wesley was Arminian. He didn't believe in predestination. Whitfield was a Calvinist, and he did. And so when Whitfield died, a godly woman asked Wesley this. Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see... Dear Mr. Whitfield in heaven. And Wesley said, No. No, madam. But then he continued. Because Whitfield will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am I, less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. Isn't that an amazing experience? An extraordinary story of Wesley who is so humble that he will consider him less than the least, despite all the churches he's planted, despite all the people who became Christians because of him. That he will consider him 
so little and so much of Whitfield that Whitfield will be so close to the throne of grace that Wesley will not even see Whitfield in heaven. Is that the way we see each other? Especially those who are different to you. Those you may have rivalries with. Those of a different background, of a different cultural makeup, of a different upbringing. Paul goes on in verse 5 in, in Philippians 2 to say that if we want to stand firm in the gospel, if we want to stand united to strive forward as one to proclaim the gospel, then we must have the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of, as Christ Jesus. Even though Joe Lewis was a very humble man, Paul doesn't point us to Joe Lewis as the example. He points us to one even greater, to Jesus Christ, the one who gave up his throne in heaven to become like you and me. And Jesus, in verse 8, humbled himself so much that he became obedient even to death on the cross. See, being humble and obedient and considering others better than ourselves is what Jesus did, which is what led him to the cross. And this is hard for us to do, isn't it? It's hard for us to be humble, to be obedient, to consider others better than ourselves. Because even as we grow as disciples of Christ, even as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Bible, even if we can flick through passages and verses and books of the Bible, it doesn't mean we've grown in humility. Often the opposite is true. Let me explain. A couple of years ago, I was catching up with a friend who's also a pastor, and I was telling him about Christian Union, the work of the Christian Union. Uh, at that time, was um, still a, um, a chaplain at Melbourne University, and I was spe speaking about the great work that they do. But my friend didn't look impressed at all. He'd never been part of Christian Union, but at a church that he was a pastor of one time, there were people in his church who started going along to Christian Union. They got involved, they learned heaps, they, they loved the rigorous Bible study and discipleship program. They really loved hearing expository sermons, and they really grew in their faith. But what happened was that their knowledge puffed up. And they became really critical of the church. They became really critical of the pastor. And they started saying things like how the church should start preaching through the books of the Bible and not just do topical sermons. They should implement this discipleship program. They should do these things that Christian Union do so well. They developed such an unhealthy attitude towards their church and their pastors that my friend found it extremely difficult, really, really hard the gospel as best they knew, to disciple people as best they knew, to love people as best they knew. Now, don't get me wrong, Christian Union is fantastic. It's through Christian Union that I grew, that I'm in ministry. But as I was hearing this from the pastor, I actually felt really guilty because I've been part of the problem. When I was a student, my knowledge puffed up and I became supercritical and judgmental. If ministry wasn't done like Christian Union, then it wasn't worth it. I elevated ministry practice with gospel truth. 
And so if it wasn't done this way, then it's not worthy of the gospel. And so I've had to do a lot of repenting in my life. And I've been on staff at Christian Union too. And it grieves me that when you try to do good ministry, it can still lead others to elevating what we don't want them to elevate, like ministry practice to the level of gospel truth. And so churches are hurt. Churches become divided. Not over the gospel, but just the way we go about doing gospel work. You see, it's very easy to equate ministry practice with gospel truth. But ministry practice is a, is a Christian culture. Christian union has a culture. Power to change has a culture. A church has a culture. And so expository sermons, when ministry practice becomes a gospel truth, expository sermons become law. Intense Bible study and discipleship become compulsory. And if they weren't done that way, then clearly the minister doesn't have a gospel heart. But that's not true, is it? When we think someone's, uh, something's been done well, it's easy for us to think that that's the only way to do things well. But when we think like that, don't we become conceited? Wasn't I conceited? I was. We need to consider others better than ourselves. We need to be like Wesley, the great Arminian theologian. I find it helpful to always remember, for example, that expository preaching, which so many Reformed evangelicals value so much, including ours, I find it so helpful to remember that expository preaching has only been in Australia since 1965. Not that long ago, when John Stott visited our shores and preached at Katoomba. It reminds me not to elevate ministry practice with gospel truth, lest I become conceited. And so that's why you're here, that we keep asking for feedback, because we're happy to change the way we do ministry, as long as the gospel continues to go forth. And so, friends, if you ever visit another church, please don't ever use what you love about CSAC, what you value at CSAC, how you've grown at CSAC as a measuring rod to criticise and put down other ministers or other churches. They might do ministry differently to ours, but I'm sure they love Jesus as much as we do. Friends, I'm praying that our church won't be just a multicultural church. I'm praying that our church will become a multicultural, gospel-shaped church. And I'd love for you to join with me in doing that. I hope that our church won't be known for our Asianness or our Australianness or our Anglicanness, but that our church will be known for our Christ-likeness. And so when our cultures clash, we won't look to our cultures for answers, we'll look to Jesus for answers and remember what Christ has done for us and consciously commit to have the mindset of Christ. And when we do that, our church will be Christ-centered. 
Our church will be gracious and forbearing. Our church will be forgiving and loving. Our church will be familial and hospitable. Our church will be gospel-shaped. What a wonderful church for all of us to strive to have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your goodness and kindness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, by his blood, you have created a new humanity and you continue to build your people, saving people from different nations, language, tongue, cultures, backgrounds. And we thank you so much that you're doing that amongst us. And Father, more and more, we want our church to be a gospel-shaped church. And what that means is that we want anyone from any cultural background to feel welcomed and loved here, that they will feel that they will hear the gospel, that they will commit with us in being a gospel-shaped church. Please grant us, Father, good memory of what Christ has saved us from and resolve to have the mindset of Christ. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, uh, now it's an opportunity for you to ask your questions. I'm sure there are text messages already that's been sent through. So, Dave, you can shoot them out. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, first one, uh, one question, two parts. Uh, kind of thinking about welcoming. The way we welcome people is determined culturally. The way we welcome someone is, will be based on, on our culture. So the question is, what does it look like for us uh, to, to welcome others with, with a gospel shape on Sundays and during the week? Uh, and the second part to that question is, uh, if that really is for all of us to do, why do we have welcomers on Sunday morning? Yeah, great. So two-part question. The first question is about how do we welcome people with a cross-shaped attitude and heart? Uh, and the second one is, um, so I forgot already. Let's just deal with the first one. Short memory. I need good memory. Okay, so uh, th- that's, a great, that's a great question, isn't it? And so I think it, it really begins with prayer. Like in my mind, if you want to be a good welcomer, uh, pray before you get here. Uh, last year, uh, someone told me that um, they were praying about who they could be welcoming today before they came to church and who they could invite and go out for lunch with. And so I, th- I was blown away by that. I was so encouraged. Before church, they were already deliberately thinking of how they can go out of their way to welcome a stranger and to have lunch with. So I think it definitely begins with that prayer and your attitude and your and what you're coming to church to do. Are you coming to spectate and be a consumer, or are you coming to serve and to be a fully-fledged member of the church? And I think I remember the second question now. Aren't we all on welcoming? And so, that, and so therefore, why do we need welcomers? Uh, and so that's right. We're all on welcoming. Uh, that is part of our ministry every week for all of us. Uh, but unfortunately, it's hard for new people to be welcomed at 10 to 10 when most of us arrive at 10 past 10. Uh, And so that's the reality, isn't it? Uh, That um, we would love to be a more welcoming church and that most of us are here at 9.30 to welcome each other and to welcome our visitors. Uh, And so that takes prayer, that takes a commitment to say, no, 
I'm on welcoming this week, whether I'm rostered or not. And so I'm going to be praying about how I can be welcoming. Um, pray in the car on the way here with your kids. Uh, so Kylie and I will talk to our kids about, so we, we might be expecting this friend to come along or, uh, you know, or, or we've noticed that this, per, this kid has been feeling maybe a bit left out or whatever. Uh, we pray and ask the kids to pray that they will welcome their friends. Um, so pray in the car, be intentional, come early, park further away, reserve the closest spots to, um, to our visitors. Um, yeah, like I, I think I can go on about it, but yeah, pray and be active and have the mindset of Christ. He, he, did, he didn't wait for us to ask him to die on the cross. He went and did it. So go and do it. Go and welcome others. Be like Christ. I've got another question here, but is there a question from the floor? Okay. Yeah, right. just on that as well. Uh, Brin's written a great pastor's corner on welcoming and all those sorts of things. I think it's great. Please read it. Uh, it's very personal of his uh, that he shares about his own um, experience, and so let that be an encouragement and challenge as well. Yep, Dave. Yeah, last question we have. Uh, when we clash with others uh, at church on a ministry practice, um, how important is it to pursue and find unity uh, on the issue? Yeah, okay, great. Um, yeah, the reality is that especially when you have people of different cultural backgrounds, you're not going to find unity on everything. And so the question is, how important is it to you for your own personal uh, growth, I think? Uh, so... Uh, unity in the gospel doesn't mean unity on all things. Um, Wycliffe, um, uh, sorry, not Wycliffe, Whitfield and Wesley uh, were um, theologically different on predestination. But they were brothers in Christ, and that's very clear with what Wesley said. And it's interesting, actually, I read that Whitfield, so Whitfield gave over um, the reins of caring for the sheep in England to John Wesley when he departed to go to America uh, to preach there. And John Wesley made it very clear that he was Arminian. When Whitfield came back, he didn't plant reformed Calvinist Methodist churches in places that Whitfield had already planted because they were expressing a unity in the gospel even despite this difference. And so some of us may not be able to go to a church with this difference, and that's okay, but that's more theological. But when it comes to ministry practice, I think part of the question is uh, how much unity is required and, yeah... Sorry, I I'm trying to articulate the question in a different way. So we're not going to be united in, in every way. So, so let me give you an example. We have student ministers, we, we have apprentices and stuff that's been in our church. And so one of the key things that I, I, I tell these guys is, you're going to see how I do ministry, but what I want you to be asking me is, why do you do what you do the way you do it? Why you do what you do the way you do it? What I'm trying to say here is ministry must be indigenized. Uh, in Africa, I'd be expected to preach for two hours. 
But if I preach for two hours here, you guys won't be coming at 10.10. You'll be coming at 12.10 to hear the last bit of it. Culturally, we're just very different. But are the Africans committed to preaching? Yes, they are. Am I committed to preaching? Yes, I am. But we're indigenizing the way in which we are doing ministry. And so you need to understand, I think, primarily what you want to see is are the principles there, the expressions may be different, but do you have the core fundamental principles of commitment to God's word, to God's church, there? Um, and so, uh, for example, uh, the illustration I gave about uh, this other church where my friend was a minister, um, I suspect that if these students were like me, I wouldn't have gone back to my church asking, so, why, so how do you preach the gospel and why do you do it topically? Or how is discipleship being um, uh, uh, encouraged in our church? So they're not asking those questions like, do you have these core values and principles that we see as important in the Bible? And how do you express it? And you may express it differently, and that's okay. But have you also considered these ways? But at the end of the day, the pastor, pastoral team and so forth have to decide because they have to stand before Jesus and give an account for the way in which they've exercised uh, their ministry. Um, and so, um, look, I, I think it's a complicated question. I'd love for you to come and talk to me about it um, if you've asked this question or you're interested. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think the less, the more united we are on just the gospel and the more different expressions there are, the more it glorifies God, I think. Well, what I mean by that is that it just shows how we can still be young on, uh, one, young, What's that? <laughs> One on the gospel, um, but there's the freedom of expression, um, for example. Yeah, sorry. Great question. I need to think through how to articulate that better. <laughs>